I love, I love the Beatles. I love, I'm a fan of process. I'm a fan of, of seeing, you know, great artists in the messy act yep. of creation and yeah, the yeah, human yeah. and all their own yeah. doubts. Yeah, you yeah. know, it pulls them off of the pedestal a little bit and makes them yeah. even more beautiful in many ways. Absolutely. And the, the, this is all through that the process mm. of creating these songs is fantastic. <laughs> as, as, uh, as my wife Evie said, oh my God, there's so many hours of them just playing with each other. I mean, like playing <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah. Like 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 playing a game, like not playing their own songs, playing no. other people's songs, yeah, yeah. and and playing them in a variety of different styles yeah. while they're waiting for tapes to roll or yeah. mics to be set up, and then suddenly they'll start working, hmm. and and you'll see them discovering their song. This week's Winley was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, okay, so it's been a week since the premiere of Get Back. This is uh, John's first chance to tell us his thoughts. You you heard my initial thoughts last week in that two-parter with uh, our friend from across the pond, one of our friends from across the pond, uh, the host of the Winner of Discontent podcast. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. So what did you think of the three parts together as a whole. As a whole, as a Beatle fan, it was a total joy. I've had people write me and say, I cried. And and I get that. I didn't cry, but I, I get that. It was really an emotional experience. And as a songwriter, getting a chance to sit in the room with these guys coming up with this stuff was wonderful. Well, I mean, you're not just coming up with the stuff, then how they workshop the song together to the final product. Yeah, it was amazing. So, you know, I give it five thumbs up. (laughs) At the same time, I also know that there's been criticism that it was boring. And I can see that, too, from a certain standpoint. Two take one, silent turnover. I don't think Beatles people are saying it's boring. You know, that's what I like to call the not wheeze. Yeah. Nobody listening to this podcast thought it was boring. <laughs> For people who are Beatles fans, it was just great. But for someone who is going to casually come to it, it might be a little boring. This is one of the few times, I mean, even Anthology, that was only sort of designed for the hardcore fans. You know, the box sets are also only sort of designed for the hardcore fans. This, particularly since Peter Jackson, who himself is a hardcore (laughs) fan, right? you know, him being behind it, he knows what we want. There's just so many little things. You know, he name checks virtually every get back bootleg we've had through the years. When when he included that little snippet of codename Russia, yeah, it's yeah. like, ah! Yeah, that was great. The history of bootlegs is peppered all through this. So he grabs that dialogue and uh, that's great to see or hear. And then what he's managed to do, not just with the visuals, we can put the visuals aside. The visuals, it's tremendous. There's no question about that. I just know, based on the interviews that I've seen with Peter Jackson, that it's like 
King Tut's tomb to see some of this stuff for the first time and go, I recognize why that moment is important, or I recognize that the interchange between someone and someone is significant. It took a hardcore fan to make something this good. But even more than the visuals, the audio is people have developed this thing that they call Mal, you know, cute name, for their artificial learning tool. Right. And we've seen some similar results for things like, well, we talked about the recent fan version of the Star Club tape, which used a similar technology. But what he does here, just being able to pull out things that we never imagined from the Nagras. Yes. And, you know, in, in part two, there's going to come a point where there's a discussion between John and Paul about George and about how the band kind of feel about each other. The flower pot tape. Yes. And that's a huge moment in the narrative of this because, you know, when you hear John Lennon telling Paul why he and George have a problem with Paul. And the fact that really they can never quite completely ignore when the cameras were directly on them. So, you know, to get them really and truly vulnerable when they think they're not being listened to. Yes. Well, in the course of the days we're going to talk about, Paul basically says, I can't do this on camera. He does get that comment there. Yeah. And, you know, it also makes things like a couple weeks back, we were talking about the original Let It Be. And, you know, you got George and Ringo coming in and making the silly faces for the camera. And it's like, yeah, they did that a lot. Yes. And that's the looning that Ringo complained was taken out of the original Let It Be. Because he said, you know, he did a lot of that and it all got taken out. Well, now we see it. And then, you know, before we start, this is absolutely not a whitewash. Now, now while the word heroin never comes up, John does talk about abusing himself in the film. Yes, yes, you know. But I've also read, oh my gosh, she's on heroin all the time, and I, I don't see it, actually. Well, through Twickenham, you can see, certainly through what we're talking about today, and through when George leaves, he has his moments where he clearly has this sort of glassy-eyed stare. Right. Now, some of that may be Peter Jackson did have to assemble things. What was filmed was hardly continuous for any given song on any given day, so he had to reconstruct what it might have been like. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of backs of heads. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so are we ready to actually sort of start in on the film? Uh, sure. I think the first thing I want to say is, in the course of these uh, 25 days, I think, uh, George will grow a mustache. <laughs> 28 calendar days. It's from the 3rd to the 31st. Okay. 22 filming days. Okay. Well, maybe he stopped growing it during the weekends. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He he might have had reason to grow the mustache, uh, just like he might have had reason for uh, being in a grumpy mood that yeah. morning. But we'll leave that we'll leave that for next right. week. That's why he didn't shave. He was he was grumpy. <laughs> uh, the other thing I would say that I was surprised is that George Martin is there from the top of the film. I mean, he he is there a lot more than I knew. Yeah, he he made an appearance at least every day. You know, he wasn't there through all of the filming on every day. Although in, during the Apple sessions, he really was. Pretty much. And he was always asking, what, what are the times? When are you going to be here? That's how he is as far as his calendar. You know, he works from this to this on this project. And so he fully was kept aware of when the sessions were supposed to be. And he was there from the beginning. You know, he was there before Paul was. Well, and Giles talks about how George Martin's strongest memories of that session were so miserable. He doesn't seem to be really having a miserable time. There are a couple of days in Apple where he's clearly bored and wondering, well, what's going on here? But still, he, for the most part, seems professional and accepting of Glenn Johns doing what, what Glenn Johns was hired for. Right. He pitches in and is always engaged, but he's not in any way in control per se. So maybe he just kind of remembers it as being, I made suggestions, but. <laughs> but who was in control? I mean, 
Michael Lindsay Hogg clearly wasn't. Glenn Johns clearly wasn't. And to a certain extent, it seems that none of the Beatles were. I mean, Paul tried to be, but. Yeah. <laughs> it was badly organized. Kind of like Magical Mystery Tour, I guess. Nobody's in charge, and we're just going to show up and do this. Well, maybe we should let uh, Peter Jackson have a shot at the Magical Mystery Tour <laughs> there outtakes. You there you go. Although, on a more serious note, there are also 50 hours from first U.S. visit. And Apple has purchased the entirety of the film that the Maisels brothers took. I wouldn't mind seeing them give him a crack at that. Does it survive? Yes. Apple says they have 50 hours of it. Okay. Because, you know, nothing survived from Hard Day's Night. The Maisels kept everything. And Albert, before he passed, said, we no longer own that. We have sold Lock, Stock, and Barrel, that footage, to Apple. So, and then they apparently sold it around the time that First U.S. Visit was created. That's where the money went. So the film starts, the first time through, I was a little bit surprised at this sort of window-boxed mini-anthology they give us to open the film. Right. So it's nine minutes. I mean, you know, there are a couple of weird things. They, They say 1956, John and Paul met in 1957. John was 16, but... (laughs) Right. But, you know, they get the story right, and uh, for the most part, particularly for a a casual audience. The second time through, I kind of got it much better. It serves to actually sort of bring up all these little points that become important during the Get Back film. You know, it tells the Brian story. I was immediately struck by the, the music, the beat and uh, their sense of humor, actually, on stage. And it was there that, really, it all started. Ever so briefly, but it does tell it. And, and, you know, you even get... And here with the Beatles was Brian Epstein, their famous manager. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Oh, that's my grandfather. He's very clean. For the medium fans, you know, someone who's seen Hard Day's Night and is familiar with it, they, they might not have recognized that except for... Oh, here it is in the beginning of the movie. Right. Don't let me die. Time love for the first time. I don't think this is a very acoustically good place. Who's that little old man? Oh, is he? One of the hardy fishermen or something. Clean, though. I described it on Facebook as being the last time with the Beatles. Right. You know, the first time through, I didn't quite recognize how good it actually was. You know, all the key moments are there that you need to know in order to understand what is going on and get back. Hmm. I'll, I'll have to look at it again. <laughs> That was what I got out of it the second time. It's like, well, I still don't think it's essential, and I think they could have done it a different way. It's like, okay, well, I'll buy that. Right. He got my buy-in, particularly having now seen the entire thing. It struck me that through this, they go through a whole bunch of songs, you know, where it's just barely a song. It's kind of a jam, and they have some words with it, and, and so the film sticks a title and Leonard McCartney. They did get a copyright on uh, a lot of things because of this film, I think. That may have been a request from somebody. (laughs) Someone is in charge of this film. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the fact that Peter Jackson says that no one ever made any notes to him, I don't completely believe that. (laughs) Right. The the only one who apparently made notes to him was Disney saying, can't we cut out all the cursing? Yeah. (laughs) And then he's like, no, these are northern lads, and that's the way they talk. If you want to show it, you're going to show it my way. Yeah, although it's not as bad as I know it could have been. <laughs> yeah, John Lennon. <laughs> right. Look, I'm not your nickel parents, and I'm sick of upside hippies coming knocking at my door with a meat for peace symbol. Get this back fast. I don't owe you for anything, and all I got to say is for you. We move through this sort of nine-minute anthology, what they seem to want to tell us is that the Hey Jude promo was really what got them in the mood for playing live in front of some kind of audience. Yeah, 
for sure. It's always amused that the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which was just the month before, was in a way what the Beatles were putting together. Yeah, although there's there's a little bit less of the rehearsal footage in the Rock and Roll Circus. <laughs> there's a little bit. Right. And John certainly liked that uh, what Michael Lindsay Hogg asked him to do in the introduction. He repeated it enough, <laughs> but we'll get to that yeah. later. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that the film opens with John doing Don't Let Me Down with a different verse. I mean, he's got the, the chorus, of course, but the verse is completely different. But what he's saying in the verse, it, different melody, and he's saying a series of lines. It's everybody got a, everybody got a, you know, he says that several times. Uh, not in the same rhythm as what happened with, I've got a feeling, but it's similar, a mindset. And that also fits in with, you know, John was fond of the list songs, yes. as we've commented on several times. Yes. So we, so we move into Twickenham. I wasn't aware that it was the Magic Christian that had paid the bills for all their time at Twickenham. I knew that that was the thing about Ringo leaving. But I didn't know that they had paid for the soundstage. No, I didn't really connect Dennis O'Dell with that project as well. One of the sound stages was reserved for the Beatles to do their thing, which at this point they were just kind of vaguely thinking was a television thing. Right. And rehearsals. And I guess they were going to bring in recording equipment, but the whole thing was a weird danced watch because clearly there was a crew perhaps working on what they were going to do with magic Christian people walking around the idea that these guys are supposed to be really creative with this constantly moving movie crew is just boggling. Well, and the fact that the first day, day one, when they walk in, there aren't even chairs. (laughs) Right. Who prepared for this? And when they walk in, I mean, that morning, they're still setting stuff up. The set wasn't ready for them to walk into. And the lights, which would become the hallmark of Twickenham, right. those weren't even turned on yet, the colored lights. Yeah, that comes day two. <laughs> you, you look at day one, whenever they zoom in on Ringo, the wall behind him is just sort of breaking and falling apart, which of course is intended to have scenery in front of it usually. Right. Sets built, and it, it's like being in a huge backstage you know, there's nothing set for scenery or, or anything. It's just gray walls and, you know, right off. I mean, they play f- through a, a couple of things. But early on, they have a meeting with Paul and, and uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg and George Martin about the sound of the room. And Martin's like, this is not good. All you need is, is really a good acoustic place to be in. Which this isn't. Which this isn't. Um, uh, we nobody sort of definitely struck on this place. George was saying before it's not good acoustics. I like the idea of working with a big PA though, because I think yeah. it would trigger off something with you. It'd be like doing a live performance. Yeah. My real feeling is that the venue itself would yeah. be quite good as yeah. opposed to shabby. I tell you what, there's a there's a small stage here which is soundproof. You can have a look at. Yeah. I just don't know whether I'm building on it or not today, because I know I'm yeah. erecting on one. But I can have a look and is see. This is your place to. Yeah, well, I've just I've got it under contract till the end of May from from uh, last week, December twenty fifth. I just feel if we could get a spectacular venue, we gain rather than lose. Yeah. And I think he kind of gives way when it's like, well, we'll you know we'll come up with a uh, a Hamburg PA so to speak and, and have a sound because he's like it could be good, but it's not <laughs> now. You know, they just take a little bit snippet of them talking about the PA, but if you listen to that whole conversation, that's where George's, well, we should learn some songs first comes from. Yeah. Another thing that got me was uh, at one point Ringo says, this is only going to take two weeks. (laughs) Magic Christian. It's fantastic. The super script. George, just finishing it off. You will do, yeah. I'm using the other two stages because I left this free for 
Nice. I'll take you up in the art department when you get a moment. Yeah, okay. And you can see some of the designs and all that, because it's well underway. Is it still the 17th? No, 24th now, because of this, you know, you want to get oh, this. Oh, this is only going to take two weeks. Well, we don't know yet, do we? So love the last forever. And here's probably a good point to bring up uh, Glenn Johns and that Afghan coat. <laughs> yeah. We talk about the John and his fur coat. It's like, wow. Yeah, he clearly had been shopping somewhere recently. <laughs> I'm going to be on film. I want to look good. I want to look great. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look really hip. And I won't worry about how it looks 52 years later. Yeah. And how dare Michael Lindsay Hogg, that little 12 year old boy, could smoke cigars. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's trying to make himself look like the man he thought was his father at the time. <laughs> Mom, Mom tells me that dad is Orson Welles, so I can do that too. <laughs> Which is real ironic, you know, later on when he actually brings up Orson Welles. <laughs> so yeah, we, we go through, I've got a feeling, you know, that's a... That's the clip which we've had for a while. Yeah. It actually continues after George's. Uh, is that one called I've Got a Feeling? You know, J- John responds, uh, no, it's called I've Got a Heart On. That's Yeah, the, the next little bit really is kind of cool to watch. They're, they write on uh, Don't Let Me Down. Don't let me. Yeah. That's all the bits you've got. Don't let me. If you had Don't Let Me Down, say yeah. it twice at the beginning. But do you know like when I you bring that, I'm in love, because I'm oh. in love for the first one. I don't dig that, it sounds like a middle age Oh, yeah. Okay. It sound, but I'm, so scrap that, except use that somewhere near the end. That when used to go after the... Lover, the lover and the purse. No, you know, that's... Well, nobody that's ever loved me like she do me. I'm just having a break in that bit. Yeah, but no, it's a, skip that little... Yes. ...interlude. No, I'll Put the interlude right somewhere. At the beginning. I'm yeah. the one set, it'll let me down. Uh, like she do me, ooh she do me, yes she do me. I didn't quite get around to making sense, you see. So we'll see what happens. Uh, do you want some sandwiches? That's just cool to watch from. Yeah, from from a musician standpoint. I mean, just this whole business of seeing how they created things. Now, of course, this isn't completely how they worked at other times. You know, I think John and Paul would typically come in with a bit more of the song here. They're much more sort of dragging things out of thin air and then starting in on the arrangement. Whereas before, they would have a, you know, at least fairly complete idea of a song, certainly verses and choruses. Yeah. And then it's like, then they would figure out how they wanted to play on it. Right. Uh, we see Kevin Harrington, who who would become known as the redhead on the roof. <laughs> Mal's assistant. That's great to see. Yeah. It's great to see all of these people, you know. Yeah, Jimmy Clark. <laughs> One thing that a lot of people said is like, this is the first time I've ever heard Mal talk. And it's like, yeah. other than his line and help, White Cliffs of Dover. Yeah. And he sounds liver puddly. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I noticed was that from that first day, Paula's going, we're not going abroad. I was very taken by the place Dennis talked about. Yeah, this amphitheater. Mm. Because I could see it outside, torch lit. 2,000 Arabs and friends around. <laughs> no, I, I think we won't be. I think you'll find we're not going abroad. Because mm. mm. uh, Ringo just said he doesn't want to go abroad. And he put his foot down. So... Yeah. Olsen Jimmy Nichols might go abroad. <laughs> I think the thing to do is just be very flexible still about every aspect of the enterprise. I think, well, I think, you know, <laughs> Michael, I think you're pretty right. You won't give up. Pretty fair. You're pretty right, Mike. Michael Lindsay Hogg, is, uh, he, he wants to push them towards somewhere big. Dennis O'Dell and Michael Lindsay Hogg just are constantly pushing these ideas on them. And it's like, just be quiet and let them figure this out. The great response to that, well, Ringo's not going overseas. We're not going abroad. Well, we'll get Jimmy Nicole. <laughs> then it ends with an early version of two of us. And Henry Cooper, the British fighter who was apparently pretty famous at the time, who is now remembered as being one of the guys who got pummeled 
terribly by Muhammad Ali. Right. I thought it was interesting that knowing how the evolution of two of us went, that it started off for Paul on an acoustic guitar. And it'll go to electrics and, you know, the arrangement will take on a other thing and then it'll come back to the acoustic guitar. Eventually in the end, yeah. It's like, oh, well, I, w- I was right where, I, where we started, so. Yeah, this is actually the way to do it, is the acoustic guitar. Day two, the Friday, starts with them reading a proof of the new issue of Beatles Monthly. You can tell it's a proof because, well, it's cut incorrectly. <laughs> All right. We actually see them see them reading through it, and it's like the top of that page is cut at an angle, and it's cut badly. Yeah, that's got to be approved. <laughs> Since this was January, and they talk about Paul going to Portugal, then it's pretty close. I mean, it's in real time almost. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I I don't think it took them all that long to actually get any corrections in and printed and out to the fans. Accompanied by his current steady American photographer, Linda Eastman, Paul spends a December week in Portugal visiting the Beatles biographer, Hunter Davis. We get Ringo with his new song, Taking a Trip to Carolina. <laughs> and Paul says, Taking a Trip to Carolina. Oh, that must be in Ringo's mind. It's like, <laughs> yeah, they're thinking of James Taylor. <laughs> right. Um, I think right around that time, George basically says, you know, all of his songs are kind of slowish. He's already kind of like, I'm not all that into this yet. Well, I mean, you know, this is also right around where he says, uh, I don't want to do a show. Yeah, right. That's pretty funny. We had a fair bit of them going through a bunch of early songs. Right. Well, there's another thing that happened before that. If you wanted to get eight-track stuff to record all this, where would we get it? Because well, apparently we, it hasn't we'll been. lend it to ourselves, but EMI should do it. You know, it's like if Benjamin Britten wants to do an album right. in Paris. EMI would get it. And they do, of course. We subsidize EMI, then get it out of it. Right. They just told Glyn and Mel, they just told them that they've only got four track. But I know for a fact that they got eight track out for the Beach Boys. But the Beach Boys are American. I guess this was when George sort of stepped up and said, well, you know, I got one, but somebody needs to look after this equipment because, well... This is 10,000 pounds. <laughs> and I think when it eventually comes in, there's talk about, well, is Alex, as head of Apple Electronics, is he going to set it all up? And George Martin said, no. <laughs> Which, of course, is foreshadowing for what we're going to get in a couple days here. Yeah. Still, nobody had gone over to that studio to see what's there. The studio was actually not in terrible shape, well, other than the fact that they hadn't put in a patch bay yet. Or run cords, or it looks to me like there's a window open to the outside. But we'll get there. <laughs> right. There's a myriad of details in this that you go, wow, <laughs> maybe we can't do this on a chronological timeline. They're having lots of fun, you know, and Paul goes through these various songs, Just Fun. We know we know that our love is just fun. Right, and... Uh... Thinking of Linking, your favorite. <laughs> yeah, although they didn't do that big opening. that you know That's the thing that got me. So he was just doing the tune. Won't you please say goodbye? That was an interesting one. Won't you please say goodbye? Long as long since grown cold. Hey, won't you please say goodbye? How many times must you be told? Won't you please say goodbye? I don't quite know what that was. They've got the copyright on it, apparently, so... Yeah, you know, maybe they didn't quite know what it was either. The, The list of these songs is interesting to me because clearly they all know them to some degree. You know, Ringo's probably hearing them for the first time, but, you know, there's quite a few songs that they did together. Don't know how much they played the out, you know, when they were performing in their early days, but there are, you know, quite a few songs there. Well, I mean, of course, John and Paul would know them because they were basically sitting nose to nose and writing most of those things. Right. Although they didn't go for any of the ones that they had actually sort of handed out to other people. Right. Well, other than Peter and Gordon. 
But where all that leads to is, is them resurrecting one after 909. Yes, that's actually worked. Whereas a lot of the other songs are just fragments. Yeah, they would have had to put together a medley or something. Maybe that was the beginning of the uh, Abbey Road medley. Peter Jackson here chose to uh, put in the Casbah photo of Cynthia. He, he does that periodically, and, and I think he had to. You know, you got to break up Twickenham. <laughs> right. You, you got to cut away to something. Charlie had another and a bag of tail, and Lordy, Lordy, did they have a bag of fun? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. They went through their old songs, and then they went through songs they used to play, the Harry Lime theme. Some of these little pieces that they play, it's like, yeah, I could see the whole thing at Hamburg, you know, because there's a wide range of songs they do. Then they kind of went back to working on their own songs. They do uh, I've Got a Feeling. Yeah, yeah. before they do that, they they do a bit of Midnight Special, which we always have to mention. It's it's a song about here. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Or you'll be Sugarland bound. <laughs> I was in Sugarland just this week. Well, there you go. And the prison's still there, although it's not the centerpiece of of the town anymore. <laughs> but you still don't pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> and here's where George got shocked. Oh, we yeah. see that whole yeah. segment. <laughs> Poor George. I'm not quite sure why it's here. I, you know, there may have been something else that felt better, but you know, again, Peter Jackson. I guess it's like, well, it's in Let It Be. I, I, I need to explain what's going on here. And it resolves. The, the other guy got shocked too, so George was happy. <laughs> they never cut the ends off of their guitar strings. They just let them hang, didn't <laughs> yeah. they? Stick a cigarette. John couldn't find a place to put a cigarette down, so he just stuck it on the end of one of his guitar strings. <laughs> right. Like, then they, as you say, they start moving back towards their own material, towards material which is actually going to be on this new, at this point, it's the TV special. Right. Although, as we said, they are talking about getting equipment into Twickenham uh, for recording, and George's volunteered his eight track right so what was the control board do we know that was that was, was that an emi control board it was it would certainly become an emi control board in apple studios is that the same one did they uh, lash two four track boards together I think that's what they ended up with at apple that's certainly what they yeah. ended up with yeah. emi seemed to be ungracious <laughs> <laughs> this is another segment where they're actually sort of working along and actually figuring things out. The In, in this case, it's the harmony on, on I've Got a Feeling. Yeah, that was interesting that Paul gave John this melody that was too high for him. <laughs> and then Paul sang a harmony on top of that. And then it was Paul's harmony that kind of became what he sang. You know, it's really that great Paul McCartney scream. Um, but John just, he had it out. He, he knew he couldn't do that. Right on it. Well, that's, that's what he says. He says, I'm not 18 <laughs> anymore. <laughs> right. He mentioned several times during the course of these sessions that, you know, he really had to ration himself because if he blew out his voice one day, then he can't sing the next. Yeah. He doesn't want it to hurt every time that they rehearse. <laughs> and who can blame him? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I, I agree with that completely. Yeah. So. And then he goes back to to a little little bit of uh, Obadi. Uh, uh, Desmond has a sparrow in his parking <laughs> spot. That's Desmond had a sparrow in his parking lot. One, two, three. Don't let John being John, and when he wasn't spaced out, John was very funny. He was funny when he was spaced out. <laughs> he his mind just went places uh, where it should not go it was almost like robin williams the associations he would make in his head yes clearly he, he uses that same skill on his lyric writing I, I dig a pony and everybody had a hard year i mean he would sing different phrases each time you know his mind just kind of went places until Yoko asked him to get back to what he needs to be doing. <laughs> That's what she was whispering in his ear. Another myth busted. Yoko's not doing anything to the band at this point. No. 
she's mostly just sitting there. Right. And it may be just that. That's all that had to happen is her being there to annoy some folks. Because later on, there'll be a discussion about Yoko and John and his need to have her close by. And Paul is like, I totally get it. He just wants to be with her. Well, and we got to remember, Yoko had relatively recently just had a miscarriage. End of 68. I mean, yeah, November. Yeah. The baby was supposed to be born in February, I believe. Yeah. We talk about Yoko in the bed during the Abbey Road sessions. You know, part of the reason why she was there may well have been health concerns. A miscarriage is, is a nasty thing, especially for the way her miscarriage went. Yeah. And I agree. There wasn't anything overt that she did. But I also have to say, it's like we were saying with another issue. This had to clear the Lennon estate. Yeah, but still, he's using enough of the footage that it can't be something completely different. Right. They let them leave in the bit with Heather, which we'll get to you know, in the Apple Studios, where Heather is clearly being a little kid saying, oh, well, I can do what she just did. Sean yeah. goes, yeah, go. Yeah, but you know, if there was something going on, it didn't take a whole series of something going on. You know, it could just be one single incident that either gets in the film or doesn't get it in a film that could set the tone for something. I personally think it was more people in the circle around the Beatles that were tended to be more critical. Magic Alex, anybody? <laughs> right. So then they move on to Give Me Some Truth, which what Peter Jackson has now said is that when he showed the footage to Paul, Paul had no memory of helping him write any of Give Me Some Truth, which is kind of funny. Yeah, it is a Lennon copyright, but uh, Paul is clearly f- familiar with the song. This is the version that I wanted, which is not in the box set. Uh, I've got one. Uh, give me give me some truth or something. Tell me that. <laughs> give me some truth or something. We can finish that. Because remember your hangman bit? Yeah. It was all right. No. No, no, freaked out. Uh, yeah, yellow belly son of Gary Cooper gonna. Yeah. Freaked out, get him. It was started in D, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, but. Sick and tired. No, in fact, that was my bit. Sick and tired. Sick and tired. Yours was in E, wasn't it? question i have is where this song was learned because this is day two and, and paul knows it enough to know the melody and the words the fake words that you use that he would help to move along and he knows the pattern of the the melody and i mean there's there's things that he knows that i, I don't know where that came from whether they actually worked on the song somewhere Although they didn't do it nearly as frequently, maybe they did still have outside songwriting sessions where they just happened to to hook up and it's like, oh, well, let's, let's work on some stuff. I, I've got this and you've got yeah. that. It made me wonder. We know with Hey Jude that there was, there was at least once where they were outside somewhere and Paul played it for yeah. John. So then moving on, they asked George what he's got. Oh, I've got a few slow ones if you, if you want. Okay, yeah. Dad, it's me to get into a show. Yeah. <laughs> Bottoms up. If you'll all turn now to sunrise, I'd be very much appreciated for you. No, all things must pass. Is this a Harry song? Yeah, this, there's no solo or anything complicated. It's purely just rhythmical and vocal. Then if we suddenly add a Lowry organ. Oh, so the chords really are E to F sharp minor. I really like the harmonies that they had 
on the chorus because I mean, they're full throated. They're not background vocals. It's like they're all singing together. I'm going to do all things must pass. All things must pass away. Well, I mean, again, the partial bit of that that we get on the box set at the end of that, it's great. Yeah. They knew what they were doing, and it's a real shame that they never really finished or attempted it. Yeah, for sure. Although, as we would discover, it was in consideration all the way up through pretty much the next to last day. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, John also made a comment. People are doing live shows now. They do their overdubs because they're phased and echoed live, you know. We're still thinking of it in terms of the four guys at four amps at the cabin. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like phasing. But the phasing is Alex and he's building the studio and putting it in this week. Somewhere along where here, Paul had made the comment that he was listening to Sergeant Pepper and, and that's how he thought live shows should be now. Yeah. So the day ends with, they go back to a, a couple of old Beatles songs. A little bit of every little thing, that's fun. Which George suggests... That was that was yeah. kind of uh, there was another thing that, that came up though was George saying that the White Album was the the first album he ever tried to get involved in and and the camera was on Paul when George was saying that and it was almost like it was funny the way he appeared to take it like really <laughs> well again that may have just been a case of well they didn't have any coverage for that <laughs> so they had to create a shot which at least looks like it might be yeah what might fit with what they're saying you know coverage for really a lot of twickenham seems pretty spotty yeah it seems like they were thinking tv show where we'll have a couple seconds of, that we pick up here and a couple seconds we picked up there really by the time they got to apple they kept the cameras on most of the time yeah a couple of key moments at the end of the day they talk about billy preston the best jazz band i saw was ray charles band yeah, I mean, that's jazz. Really, that's fantastic. Billy Preston was too much. Billy plays piano with the band. Then he does his own spot where he sings and dances and plays organ solo. And then Ray Charles comes on. He's been so old, really, because he's like too much. Because he plays organ. So great. Now, Ray Charles doesn't bother with the organ now. He just, I'll leave it to the young guy. That's actually tied in with George's really sings the praises of Eric Clapton, the way he plays. And how it's different than how George approaches things. Yes. In fact, George says, I can't do that because Clapton plays, you know, these fluid leads over as part of the arrangement background. He goes, I just kind of put little things in and he couldn't lead like Clapton did. And then he goes on to talk about Billy Preston and how great he is. On YouTube, there's a clip of Billy with Ray Charles and, and Billy singing Double O Soul. That is just so hot. You know, as a, a kid who saw Let It Be and looked at the pictures, and at the time, Billy looked like a contemporary with these people. You see him in this film, and he's quite young <laughs> particularly since well the beatles knew him in hamburg right i hope he had a note from his teacher <laughs> and we've got footage of him uh with fats domino and some various other people on television in the late 50s and it's like <laughs> wow yeah. yeah exactly wow and he came from houston we have to mention that uh, absolutely billy preston was born william everett preston on september 2nd 1946 in Houston, Texas. When he was just one, his parents divorced, and the family then relocated with his mother, Robbie, to South Central Los Angeles. Then the day ends with uh, Peter Jackson clearly having some fun. He's he's assembled some shots of uh, tired and sleepy Beatles <laughs> over Paul vamping on I'm So Tired. Yeah. Then they had the weekend off. And did things. <laughs> so day three was the Monday, and, well, things are going to start happening. Yeah. Good morning. Ringo comes in. He says, uh, I won't lie. I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> morning. He, he clearly had had an evening. 
Right. And the various conversations, you know, they're all gathering and talking. This is where George Barton says. Now, Alex rang me yesterday, George, and said that you didn't think that uh, you needed an eight-track console. Alex said he can build one. Now, the thing is, it might go wrong. Yes. Well, and then not just that, they're already talking about the Apple Studio. He's busy building recording studios. Where George says, oh, Alex is going to build an eight-track machine. And, you know, George Martin says, I don't think we should have Alex build one because it's better to have something that we know we can use and is reliable. Then, then they go into Don't Let Me Down. Okay, I like Paul and George's harmony on Don't Let Me Down here. I don't know how it would have fit into the final song, but the la-la-las, that's really sweet to me. See, I found this part really interesting because of, in a way, what John says later about what how Paul operates. But John has this song, which clearly is unfocused at this point but paul instructs everybody george should play this arpeggio and ringo should play this drum lick and it was it's really going to a much sweeter softer smoother place than john would take things yeah and thankfully glenn johns comes along and says no no here's how you should do it and they actually oh yeah you're right yeah (laughs) I just found that part really illustrating as to how they operated. We get a couple more of these. This is the first real, how do they put together a song? Okay, it's been written, or at least it's been mostly written. Now, how are we going to arrange it? Yeah, it's part of some of the arguments they'll have as to the process of arranging. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at it in terms of time, they spent just a hell of a lot of time on this session. Peter Jackson condenses it down a little bit, but it's still a significant chunk of the film. Yeah. Them working through this. And it's important because, well, it strongly informs what comes next. Yeah. They're used to each other. (laughs) And you don't get the context of some things without just kind of having bigger knowledge. The fact that George has come back from really being George Harrison in the United States, you know, working with the band and Dylan and Jackie Lomax and meeting Frank Sinatra and all this stuff. And then he comes back into this. Now Paul's going to tell him what to play. Back to being the junior member, the little brother. That's a big background noise. Although we did get to bring another Krishna into the studio. <laughs> the, the, the camera turns around, and, and the one Hari Krishna has now become two. Yeah. But, you know, in this whole thing of trying to decide where they're going with this, Paul gets kind of petulant. For sure. I mean, it, this also informs what we got in the box set, and we, and we get a little bit of it later on. You know, the why am I moaning? It's like that now links up to this piece. Yeah. He thinks he's right. <laughs> well, and he might be. He frequently was. And, but, I mean, we can see the development of the man he would be during Wings when he had that control. Yeah. Well, even Lennon later on, when they're talking about their problems, Lennon will go, and you're often right. <laughs> but you're often wrong. Perhaps Linda would tell him that. But even Linda, you know, musically couldn't question Paul. Right. Any more than I like that or I don't like that. He gets up and takes off his guitar and sets it down and kind of complains a little bit. And George just turns around and goes, I think it's awful, actually. Well, we're going to improve it. If we had a tape recorder now and just taped down and played it out, you'd throw that out straight. Yeah, right. But no, really, you'd throw it out right. Okay. (laughs) That's not the way way to go. Right. So then they decide to move on because, well, They're reminded that at this point, the dress rehearsal was the 18th and the shows were the 19th and the 20th. So we've got 12 days. Yeah. And they've gone through four songs, but none of them are ready to go. Not at all. Except is one after nine or nine considered in those four songs? That was going to happen, but I don't know if that was part of the four. Two of us and I've got a feeling for sure. Maybe don't let me down. Yeah. So, so you know, yeah. it would have to be. Well, there you go. Because Paul really hasn't started in on his songs yet. Yeah, except for two of us. So that knowledge adds a little bit more tension to what's going on. Right. And, you know, there's this back and forth between George and, and Paul 
uh, about what to play. And, uh, you know, there, there's semi-hushed tones. <laughs> uh, and Paul kind of looks around at what's going on behind him, and he says, But I always hear myself annoying you. And I'm trying to... No, you're not I, I get so I can't you're say annoying it, you. But you know what I mean? Well, you know, we do this then, and we... And then, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I can't do it on film, either. You can't freaking do it on camera. Yeah. Forget about candy camera. The context is what matters. You know, the we're coming to the end of the day, and as it appears in Let It Be, it is a fairly big blow-up argument. And, and it doesn't play that way here at all. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there is an attempt to explain real feelings because George, at one point, really says a great truth. You know, he's, he, he, I think he feels like Paul wants him to do the way Paul would do it. And George is like, I can only do me. Yeah, I mean, they're all really being fairly reasonable. Yeah, which may be why this illustrates why they had to break up, because they just reached a point where they're all speaking truth, but you know, there's not a common vision. Well, I mean, George grew a lot more than just a mustache. <laughs> Indeed. Even during just the course of January 1969, you know, he's a different man by the end of it than he is at the beginning of it. I would agree with that. And then he goes in and demos something and all things was passed and old brown shoe on a single day. And you think he's a powerhouse, whether or not McCartney recognizes it or anybody recognizes it. I would argue that Paul had as good in 1969 as George did. Let it be in Long and Winding Road and the medley. Yeah. He was every bit... George is equal now, or John had fallen behind, but... Well, you know, and, and as this goes on, Paul will play a series of songs that populated his next two albums. Um, I mean, he has a lot of stuff there uh, in his arsenal, and he's really at a peak. Really, you know, starting with from the White Album period, all he had to do was almost think about them, and, you know, we're going to get into this in, in the next show, because it, it happens on the next day. But I mean, we, we can mention it because we got a little bit of this in the, in the 60 Minutes piece. The whole get back thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. Paul can just pull these songs out of the air. Yeah. You know, uh, what's the famous story? Picasso's last words. Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. It's like he pulls it right out of the air. But what we get through this film is, okay, there's inspiration and there's even, you know, the first part, but there's still all this hard work. What we just saw them doing with uh, Don't Let Me Down. Yeah. It takes a lot to get it to the finished product. Well, you know, they have set themselves a goal. It's just, I don't even see how you would do that. And the fact that they pulled it off so successfully and not only pulled it off, but think about how many great songs are on this album. And it could have been more. So for people who are listening, the Beatles were really, really good. That's one of the things that Peter Jackson is telling <laughs> us. It's not these guys are gods. It's uh, these guys were very talented young men, but they also w knew how to work to make the finished product. Yeah. Let's sort of wrap back around to the argument. The whole, I'll play what, what you want me to play, or I won't play if you don't want me to. Here, that's just George making the same argument, which is he's making in several different ways. Yeah. But Paul does kind of take offense at that. You know, it's like, that's not what I'm trying to do. And Well, but Paul also is right. Yeah. As we were saying, they're, they're all equally correct in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I like that they pointed out that George says, you don't annoy me yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah, anymore is the qualifier. <laughs> don't annoy me anymore. And, you know, it, it's a little bit snide and a little bit, yeah, what the hell's going on here? But no, you know. Yeah. I'm used to you now. Yeah. Well, you know, um, 
being an, uh, an original Beatle fan, the, the fact that, that George and Paul were exchanging those words was surprising. These guys were the best of friends. They didn't fight like that. And so when you saw that movie, you're just like, wow, that's pretty powerful. But it really, with the narrative, I thought they had this argument and then George walked out. That's kind of what you get out of the original Let It Be. You know, Michael Lindsay Hogg edited the discussion to make it seem much more vivid and almost violent. Yeah. Well, they hit each other. Or did they? (laughs) Yes, that's coming too. This film shows a lot of things, not just the how or the what, it's, it's the why. They're having this discussion with cameras, with this microphone bobbing in on them. In fact, John comes out and says, you know, we need to get through this. Forget about the candy camera. Yeah. But Paul is right. You know, it's like, look, 12 days out from having to do this show, and we need to get these songs in order, and we need to do it methodically. Right. If that's how you work. (laughs) I mean, to a certain extent, the Beatles did work that way. I mean, you know, all the years that they would come off of the road, they knew, okay, we got a morning session, we got an afternoon session, we need six songs. Right. But Lennon said that it was always Paul would come in and say, it's time to do an album now, because he had his songs. (laughs) And then John would have to be like, okay, I got to write some songs, which may have gotten those songs done. But the point is, is that John didn't operate the way Paul did. Once they got through how I won the war, and once touring was over with, it had been three years since since they'd really sort of had to do this. I wish we had access to uh, McCartney's writing tapes. When you listen to uh, the evolution of Strawberry Fields or the evolution of Across the Universe, Lennon took his time, would take pieces and put things together. Paul seems to uh, operate in a different way. He creates. It doesn't seem to be evolving necessarily. Perhaps. Now, uh, one thing that we get out of this film is the true collaborative nature of the four of them. They are willing to throw in bits and they're willing to accept the bits of the others. This argument aside, certainly from the other three and even from other people it's like well change the line here i like this word better than that word and maybe we need another verse rather than going back into the chorus right when you watch this another thing you get is that harrison's contributions to a lot of these things these days would be considered part of the composer's realm and so he would get songwriting credit on it but because Lennon McCartney was this thing, you know, he doesn't get credit for, I mean, he is a big part of arranging Get Back. Yeah, that's also back to, you know, how different would the world have been had in 62, back when Northern Songs first came out. It's like, well, maybe we should include George as an equal partner as well. Right. And then they said, no, we we want to write swimming pools for ourselves. And George isn't writing full songs yet. Yeah. I guess when that was all restructured, it was, was that 65? Uh, yeah. In the early 65, it was uh, You Like Me Too Much. You know, I mean, his songwriting was still evolving. I mean, Don't Bother Me was the most advanced song that he had gotten yeah. at that point. I mean, and even to this day, you know, you know what to do on anthology. It's like. Oh, well, you know, it's not the greatest little pot, but it's it's historical and it's a pot, so we're going to put it on the record. <laughs> Paul, is, he, he was still digging at George just a little bit. Yeah. That's the first three days, and that's, that's taking us through the argument. And despite our impression all these years, George doesn't look like he's ready to walk out yet. And in fact, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. They go right back to rehearsing two of us. Yeah. You know, you throw in here that another part of the background noise is that uh, there are some domestic issues going on at the Harrison home. We'll get to that. I'm sure that's going to be a uh, pretty large topic <laughs> uh, next week. There you go. That's our commercial. What we've decided to do, we're not going by days of the film. We're more or less going by 
hours, but uh, <laughs> you know we're we're taking a couple days for each. So so that's that's how we're dividing up, and they're also roughly topic based. I mean, the argument's here, but George hasn't left yet, and George does indeed come back the next day. Yeah, and and you know who who knows how many times these kind of arguments have occurred in the past with the band. I think we can call the first three days really sort of it's the most let it be like of the sessions. They're all sort of just barely trying to get into it and they're not happy with each other. (laughs) Right. It just seems so soon after the white album we're back and we're doing the same sort of thing. And well, that's kind of Paul's whole uh, point. Although it's interesting that Peter Jackson says he went to Paul and asked him, Oh, you know, what exactly was your thought? How did you see this project going if it had gone exactly the way it was in your head? And Paul was like, I have no idea. (laughs) Right. It does make you wonder what the album would have been if they'd done, I mean, they just put out a double album. What if they were going to do a a session like they did the year before and do something as a single? perhaps and then wait a couple of months let Ringo shoot his movie and let's work on Apple and then we'll get back together and do an album it just seems so soon after that work you know that was the way it worked I mean you know you know they had to do two albums a year well I mean they didn't have to but that that was that that was their agreement I think yeah yeah but I think they were exhausted. Yeah, that's what they did. That's what they chose to do. But I think for the band, it might have been better to wait a little bit longer. Uh, in this instance, you're probably right. You know, it certainly would have been better to have gotten some more songs out of John. Yeah, exactly. If we push Abbey Road back a little bit, then you know, come together and I want you become two songs from John that could have been gone on to the let it be project and could have been played live. Right. But you know, the, the songs that that were evolving at that time that would have included old Brown shoe and maybe something, all things was past. I mean, some of those songs that didn't make it would have been more fully cooked. And one last thing. So, you know, we mentioned that George was saying that all of his songs were slow ones. Uh, It's interesting how, a lot of George's material is stuff that he just says, Oh, I, you know, I wrote this the night before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we'll get to the specifics, but you know, we talk about Paul, George had figured it out. Yeah. All right. So next week we move into uh, the next couple days. Lots of stuff to come. It's really good. And we will be bringing in friends to talk with us over the next handful of weeks. And, well, I mean, we just figured this out. We will be doing this through the middle of January next year. Wow. But the nearly eight hours deserves it. <laughs> yeah. If, if we can, if we can watch it, we can talk about it. For <laughs> We'll do three on the rooftop concert alone. <laughs> well, for that, we'll, we'll just have to go stereo and, you know, we'll put somebody in the middle and, and, and I'm on the left and you're on the right and, and, and we all talk at the same that time. That should be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll see Great. you next week. So, bye, everybody. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. It's just the Beatles at this point in 69, they're not the kids anymore and this is their lifestyles changing, but they're still the Beatles and, and Yoko and John are in love and, and, and Yoko's there, what, what, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. I mean, you know, yeah. You say they're not kids anymore, but one of the things you're reminded, because this gets mentioned a couple of times yeah. by the Beatles, they're 
like between 26 and 28 years old, right? Like George, George is 26. George is 25, I believe. George is 25, Paul's 26, and Ringo and John are 20, 28, I believe. I believe 27, 28, I believe, yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, that <laughs> seems like they're still kids, but well, they're, they're, they're in the last year of the yeah, most epoch-making exactly. band. You've got, you've got 25-year-old George Harrison Beatle, towards the end of the Beatles' career, they're, they're eight months away from breaking up, and, and he's 25. He's 25 years old. He, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Everything that George has achieved as a Beatle, he's done it up to the age of 25. What, what, a, what an amazing life, you know. But it's, it's, it's an amazing thing, because you don't, yeah, they're young. They're just, they're, they're almost, almost kids. They're just, yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's incredible. Their age is incredible, yeah. Free. I tell you one thing. There's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again.